We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Matthew chapter number 6 today, and I want you to look with me beginning with verse number 8. Matthew 6 and verse number 8. How many Bibles do we have in the preaching hour at Tabernacle Bay? Let me see them. That's great. Wonderful. Thank you. That's wonderful. I think everybody must have brought their Bibles with them. And that's always good. Now, in, in Matthew chapter number 6, you recognize that I'm breaking right in to the very middle of what we uh, call the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 contains the entire sermon as our Lord delivered the message to his disciples uh, and to others, no doubt, in the congregation in this ancient day. There's some pr- profound things, great things, great testimonies, and great uh, uh, announcements given in this Sermon on the Mount. I marvel at chapter number 5 with our Lord giving commentaries on uh, that which has been said of old. For example, uh, in verse number 21, chapter 5, you have heard that it was said by them of old times, Thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you uh, that whosoever is anger with his brother without a cause is in danger of judgment. And then I find that same thing repeated again in verse 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, That's the seventh commandment given by Moses in the Decalogue, as you well know. But in verse 28, but I say unto you, Jesus' commentary. Now, if there ever was a person that was qualified to make a commentary on that which was said by holy men of old, the Lord was that qualified person. Now, when the Lord makes a commentary on any uh, statement in the old Bible, you and me are wise to set up and take knowledge and hear what this commentary may be. In verse 28, he said, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her in his heart already. And then on, down in verse number 31, it hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, uh, let him give her a right of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committed to adultery. And then you, in verse 38, you have heard that it hath been said, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that he resists not evil, the evil one, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If a man sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go one mile, go with him the second mile. And on and on, Jesus gives his own commentary on things that are pronounced and written down in the canon of the old Bible. That's in chapter number five. And there, there are seven of those pronouncements, seven times I think it is, where Jesus says, it hath been said, but I say unto you. That will make a sermon within itself. I've never used them as a sermon, but I'm thinking about doing that. In verse number five of chapter number six, uh, Jesus went on to say, when thou prayest, now, he takes for granted that men pray. Men ought to pray. I brought you a message last Sunday on prayer, and I'm going to speak again today on the matter of prayer. And when thou prayest, it's taken for granted that, that if a man loves God and honors God and believes in God, that he's going to do a certain amount of praying. I, I think we'll do all we can do, praying faithfully and fervently and diligently. We ought to pray. Men ought always to pray and not faint, we're told in the Bible. 
And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. Now, not only does it take for granted that everybody prays, but he also knows that some people praise insincerely and that their prayers amount to absolutely nothing. I went out to pray as the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the street corners and uh, the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Well, there's one thing I know, I'm not a hypocrite because I don't love to pray on the street corner. I never have gone to the street corner in my life and uh, stood there and announced, hey, everybody now, come over, I'm going to pray. Come over, I want you to hear me pray. I have never done that in my life. I don't plan to start tomorrow. So therefore, I must not be a hypocrite because Jesus says hypocrites love to do that. They stand on the street corners and announce that they're about to pray and they have everybody come gather around them and stop them, listen to them uh, as they pray. Now, we, we, we're not like that way, not at all. But here's our way of praying. Verse six, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy father, which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall award thee openly. Now, most of the praying that I do is that kind of praying. And I think most of the praying that the average one of us do ought to be that kind. Now, there are other times when we need to pray. Uh, Brother Aiken calls upon various ones of you in the congregation to pray. And when he calls on you to pray, you ought to pray. If I call on you to pray, you ought to pray. There are times when I need to pray in the congregation as I did a moment ago as we received the offering. And when it's time for me to pray in the congregation, then I don't make any hesitancy, I pray. But that ought not to be the extent of our praying. That ought only to be the start of our praying. If a man prays like he ought to pray, there must be secret prayer involved in a healthy prayer life. Now I think I ought to say that again. There must be secret prayer involved in a healthy prayer life. If all the praying you ever do is when Brother Aiken calls on you at Tabernacle, then uh, don't, uh, that's something to be ashamed of and correct it. You, you've fallen far short. Now, I, I respect you for going ahead and praying uh, if you're called on. But it might be wise for you just to go to Brother Aiken and say, no, Brother Aiken, don't call on me anymore because I, I don't do much praying except when you call on me. Uh, I, I just feel like that might be wise on your part. Because the most of our praying ought to be secret praying, closet praying. Jesus said, don't pray to be seen of men or heard of men because the hypocrites do that. And we're not hypocrites. I love the Lord. You love the Lord. I believe the Bible. You believe the Bible. We're not hypocrites. We want to, we want to please God, don't we? I think I could truthfully say that the great majority, 95% of this congregation today, sincerely desire to please God. Now, we may strike at the ball. We may fail sometimes, but we sincerely desire to please God. I, if I know my heart, that's so in my life. I sincerely desire to please God. And I'm sure that if I please God, then my prayer life must be uh, healthy, must be scriptural and reasonable. And if all the praying you do is public praying, then there's a great vacuum. There's a great need uh, in your prayer life. I have heard a time or two of men who were called on to pray who, who would say, I beg to have me excused, and they just don't pray. Now, that's a little bit embarrassing. I wouldn't recommend you do that. If I was called on to pray, I think I'd stumble through it. And then when I got through praying, I think I'd go to the closet and say, Lord, I sure did fail. I, I, I made a mess out of it. Please forgive me, and I'll try to learn to pray a little bit better next time. 
I think I'd go ahead and pray if I was called. What I'm trying to say is that we need a secret place of prayer. The Lord said in verse 6, When thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou shut the door. Now that's secret. Your wife doesn't hear, the husband doesn't hear, the children doesn't hear. Nobody hears you. That's secret. Now that's, that ought to be the book of our prayer life. The great volume of our prayer life ought to be that kind. Now there's other kind of praying, family praying. Uh, there's grace at the table, uh, pr uh, prayer in the Sunday school classes, and prayer in various places, praying with your friends. Uh, last, uh, let's see, one night recently I was, uh, uh, yeah, Brother Henry Porter and Brother Arthur Howell uh, carried me to my meeting the other night. And the other uh, folk went to their prayer rooms. And I knew that Brother Henry and Arthur were strangers, and so I said to the pastor, we'll just go pray by ourselves. And so they went, in, and the three of us prayed in a prayer room together. And of course, they heard me pray, I heard them pray. Uh, there's a certain amount of that kind of praying that we ought to do. And that's good, nothing wrong with that. But I'm saying that the book of our prayers ought to be in the closet with the doors closed. Secret praying ought to be the volume of our prayer life. When thou prayest, not like the hypocrites, they stand on the street corner and say, I'm about to pray. Come over and hear me pray. We're not to pray in that fashion. But when thou prayest, enter into thy closet and shut the door. And pray to thy father in secret. And our father which heareth in secret shall reward uh, thee openly. Now here's another word of warning about the out of prayer in verse 7. And when ye pray, not only am I to go into the closet and close the door and pray secretly much of my prayer life, but I'm also warned against the use of vain repetition. Use not vain repetition as the heathens do. Now what is that? Vain repetition. I think all of you know what the word repetition means. It means to repeat over and over again. Uh, when a person uh, repeats whatever it might be, that's repetition. Now, if it's vain repetition, it's worthless. It could be a ritual. It could only be uh, a religious ritual, much like the Pharisees who pray on the street corner to be heard of men. Now, we're not to use vain repetition. What one of us have not heard people pray? And there are certain little figures of speech and terminology that they just say over and over and over again. Vain repetition. I've heard preachers preach, and so have you. Uh, that use certain expressions over and over again, vain repetition. I remember one man I heard preach one time uh, who, uh, who said, bless God, bless God. If he said bless God in his sermon one time, I think he must have said it a hundred times that day. Well, now, he said it so many times until I didn't really think he wanted to bless God at all. He said it so many times until I came to the conclusion that he was using vain repetition. And that's wrong. We're not to preach that way, nor talk that way, nor to pray that way. We're warned against the use of vain repetition. Brother, that sure would strip the Roman Catholics, wouldn't it? They go in with their little prayer time. Melvin, uh, 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 you uh, mock them sometimes about Mary, Mother of God, hallowed art thou, and all that. They go through that over and over again. Mother of God, uh, Virgin Mary. What is it they say? Hail, Hail Mary, Mother of God. Hail Mary, Mother of God. Is that right? Hail Mary, Mother of God. Hail Mary, Mother of God. Over and over again. Same thing. I've heard them pray on the radio. I was down in New Orleans in a meeting and listened to the radio in my car and, and the Catholics were on and they were praying and they were praying something like that. Hail Mary, Mother of God. Hail Mary, Mother of God. Over and over again for 15 minutes. 
I don't think they said one thing but that vain repetition. Now Jesus said when you pray, use not vain repetition. You're not doing that, whether it's bless God or hail Mary, mother of God. Just don't use vain repetition. Uh, let your prayers be fresh. Let your prayers be natural. Let your prayers be normal. Talk to the Lord. Talk to the Lord like you talk to me. If you were to walk up to me, you wouldn't say, how to do, preacher? How to do, preacher? How to do, preacher? How are you feeling today, preacher? How you do it? You wouldn't do that. You'd be normal and natural with me. Well, you're going to go to God the same way. Use not vain repetition as the heathens do, but be natural and normal. I remember I was in a meeting one time up at the edge of the mountains when old brother Harv Stanberry was living. Some of the older people in the auditorium and maybe listening by the radio will recognize that name. Brother Harv Stanberry was an engineer on the southern line. Uh, I drove those great passenger uh, trains for years from Atlanta to Greenville, Atlanta to Charlotte, and lived in Greenville, and he was a preaching engineer. His hair was white as snow, and a, a good man, very humble, godly sort of a fella, just as meek as he could be, large, massive frame of a body. He's dead now, his wife is dead. They had a daughter that became mentally ill for some reason and lived long years in the uh, institution in Columbia and finally died there in the institution in Columbia. Only child they had became mentally deranged. And he carried a heartache and a broken heart all the days of his life. That might have been one of the reasons his hair was white as snow. But I was preaching for him one time and uh, he, he had prayer before I went to the pulpit. And the church had a center aisle, uh, two lines of pews, and the aisle was in the middle. And old brother Harv Stanberry left the pulpit and went down and got on his knees on the floor in the middle of those pews in that center aisle and commenced to pray. And I was seated over in the amen corner. I hadn't gone to the pulpit as yet. And he began to pray, and I never have heard such a prayer in my life. It became so wonderful and so interesting to me until I opened my eyes. And I, I think when people pray, you won't close your eyes. I think it's being presumptuous and self-willed for you to sit there and look around while somebody's praying. That's irreligious. That's sacrilegious. I wouldn't do that if I was you. I think I'd have enough respect for the congregation and enough respect for the holiness of God and the might of God and the person of God. I believe I'd close my eyes while Brother Aiken is praying or the pastor's praying or anybody else is praying. But that prayer got so interesting. And the way he prayed and the terminology he used became so interesting until I had to look at it. I just had to see it. And when I opened my eyes, I saw that old man on his knees with his white head bobbing up and down in that, uh, in that prayer. And he'd say something like this. He said, now, Lord, I want you to bless all your children. He'd say, I, I come down and spread all my cares out at your feet. And he'd talk kind of slow and... And he'd say, now, yeah, I want you to do this and the other. And just nearly blessed me to death. I, I don't recall having heard anybody pray that way in my life before. And it thrilled my soul that a man could be so close to God, he'd talk to God like he'd talk to me. And that's the way it ought to be. We ought to be so personal with God and familiar with God and on such praying terms with the Almighty until our prayers would not need vain repetition. We just wouldn't need vain repetition. If you're living close enough to God, you can find a lot to talk about without using vain repetition, can't you? You know, a person that uses vain repetition reminds me of a person that's got something in his life that ought not to be there. And he rushes in and says as much as he can and as short a time as he can so as to hurry up and get away. 
I think he was a little bit afraid that God may put his finger on something in his life that ought not to be there. So he rushes in and says his prayer and then rushes out before God has time to, uh, to indict him or to convict him or reprove him or rebuke him. Don't use vain repetition. Go in before the Lord and be humble and be natural and normal in your prayer life. Now look at verse 8. Be not ye therefore like unto them, the hypocrites, for your father knoweth what things you have need of before ye ask him. Now after this manner, therefore, pray ye. Now I'm about to read out of the Sermon on the Mount what we often call the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you're going to be technical, this is not the Lord's Prayer, but rather a model prayer. Technically, I think John 17 would better qualify as the Lord's Prayer than these verses that I'm about to read. But we ordinarily refer to this prayer as the Lord's Prayer. Now, the truth is, this is a model. This is an illustration of what a prayer ought to be like. And the things that our Lord incorporates into this prayer ought one way or another become incorporated in all your praying and mine. It ought to become involved and part of your praying and mine. And in that way, uh, this that I'm about to read is a model prayer, an illustration of what a prayer ought to be like. Now look at it in your Bible. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I want to speak on that prayer for a moment today. And there's some things about it that I think are very important that our Lord set forth. Number one, I'd remind you that this prayer contains as a model, as an example of what a prayer ought to be, this prayer begins with a proper approach. Note Jesus said, when ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now as far as I'm concerned, Jesus, when he said that, taught me and you how to approach a throne of God's grace in prayer in a proper fashion. Now I think sometimes some people rush into the presence of God where angels fear to tread. They're bold and blunt in their approach to the Almighty. What one of us haven't heard a prayer on the radio or maybe TV out of Washington or maybe from some great uh, university or maybe from Columbia. Uh, this prayer has gone out and some religious dignitary uh, is reading the prayer. And he begins the prayer very bluntly by saying, God, we so-and-so. And that's how he starts it. Now that's as wrong as it can be for a man to approach a throne of God in that fashion. Now if you make a proper approach, and you ought to be, you, you, would, not, you would not write a letter without a salutation. There is not one single epistle in the New Testament that doesn't have an introduction. There is no such thing as proper sermonizing without an introduction. Uh, there's an introduction in everything we do. You write a letter, there is an introduction. If I went to the office and sat down at the typewriter to write a letter to somebody, I would not put a, a letterhead in the typewriter and roll it around 
and about halfway down the page say, I'd like to see you Tuesday morning, 10 o'clock, so-and-so, uh, and leave off sincerely yours, so just uh, sign my name. Uh, that, that would be grossly improper. You just wouldn't do that. And if somebody got a letter from me written that bluntly, it would cast a reflection upon my intelligence, upon my attitude, upon my character, you see. And when you write a letter, you, you start it off like it ought to be. And you introduce that letter. You don't get right into the heart of the things you're writing about in the first word. Not at all. But usually you say something in the, in the introduction of that letter that's common, that's precious, and that is uh, worth the mention, you see. And with that, you introduce what you're going to uh, write in that letter. Uh, Paul did the same things in every one of his epistles. Thirteen epistles of Paul in the New Testament. And without exception, every one of the epistles begin with what we call a, a, a salutation or an introduction, you see. He doesn't get right into the body of the, of the weight of the matter or the burden of the epistle. But he introduces the epistle and then he brings the burden of the epistle uh, to the people. Now, uh, that may be or may not be a good illustration. But that's what I'm talking about in this matter of approaching God. You don't walk up to God and say, God, I want you to do thus and thus. No, you don't. And if you do that, then you're not following the example that our Lord gave in this model prayer. Now, Jesus said, when you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And brother, that's saying a mouthful. When you say, our Father, you admit and confess sonship. When you say, which art in heaven, you admit and confess there is a heaven, and, and that's where God's throne is. When you say, hallowed be thy name, you admit and confess that God is great and holy and worthy of our worship and praise and adoration. And you properly approach God with that kind of terminology. But to bluntly walk up to God and announce the thing you want would be as inappropriate and as wrong as it could be. So, here is the proper approach. When thou prayest, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Approach it like it ought to be. Now, ordinarily, when you pray, you say, Our Heavenly Father, our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Bless your name. Thank you, Lord, for this or the other. Bless your holy name for the privilege of worship. Uh, and you introduce your prayer along those lines, you see. And then after you've introduced your prayer, then you bring the, the body of it, the burden of it, as the model uh, gives us in the next thing. Now look at the second thing. Not only do I see a proper approach in verse number 9, but I also see a godly concern in verse number 10. Look what Jesus said in verse 10 as the model of our prayer. He said, when you pray, say, thy kingdom come. That's the first thing. Not what I want. Not what I may think I want. Not what my family may desire. But the very first burden that I'm to be chiefly occupied with and concerned about, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in the earth as it is in heaven. Now, if I know what an illustration is, this is a perfect illustration of what a prayer ought to be like. When you say, thy will be done, thy in heaven as in the earth, 
Thy kingdom come. You're saying, Lord, what I may need is beside the point. The burden of my life is beside the point. The reason that I'm praying is not the chief thing that I'm occupied with. But you're saying, Lord, the chief concern of my life is that thy will be done in the earth as it is in heaven. The chief concern of my life is that thy kingdom come. Don't you think God's pleased with that? And brethren, if I know my heart, I think I can truthfully say that the chief concern of my life is exactly that. Now I have to have food and uh, shelter and fellow heifers and uh, other things to sustain life. I have a family life. I have a wife of, of real fellowship. I have children that I'm happy and proud uh, to be the father of. I have grandchildren and I'm thrilled about them. And I have you and I thank God for you. But the chief concern of my life is not my family nor my children. But the chief concern of my life is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. I want God's will in my life. And I think the Father's pleased when we relate that to him, when we tell him that in our prayer life. You don't come and lay all your burdens out before the Lord and say, Now, Lord, if you've got anything left over, you can give that to the missionaries. Or if you've got any blessings left over, give that to Tabernacle Baptist Church. But take care of me and my house. I want what I need first. Now, you may not say that in so many words, but when you bring your petitions before the petitions of the will of God, that's what you're saying for all practical purposes. And that's wrong. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. I'm chiefly concerned about the will of God and the prosperity of the gospel around the world. Now here's another lesson I learned from this great godly concern. I learned that me and you are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now I find that in the Bible, don't I? I sure do. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, now you say, well, you're a preacher. You're supposed to do that. That's right. Preacher ought to do that. But I believe deacons ought to do that also. And I believe Sunday school teachers and church members ought to be the same, ought to have the same frame of mind. Brethren, listen to me. I don't care who you are. If you're saved, the chief end of your life if you are born again, now if you just got religion, then you'll dismiss what I'm saying. But if you are born again, if you sincerely love God, I'm saying the chief concern of your life is the prosperity of the gospel in this world. That ought to be first in your life. And I'm not saying that you ought to neglect your family. I don't think you ought to neglect your family. But I'm saying God comes before your family. Sure does. Sure does. I've known of missionaries who go to the mission field and return defeated because the wife would not cooperate. The wife would say, I'm just not going to stay. I can't endure it. And she made life so miserable until the missionary had to come home. Something wrong with that. The chief end of every life in this building is the prosperity of the gospel. Now when a wife can cooperate, in furthering the gospel, she ought to cooperate. When a husband can cooperate and further the gospel, he ought to cooperate. 
and nothing in the world ought to come between uh, your, uh, this goal in your life. That ought to be first. Oh, but preacher, my life is so involved. You're not a bit more involved than I am. Yeah, I've got so many things to do. You don't have a bit more to do than I do. The chief end of your life and my life is to please God. Amen. Now I want to please my wife. And I'd like to please my children. And I'd like to please you. But if I've got to displease God in order to please you, you guess which one I'm going to do. I'm not going to displease God, please anybody. No, sir. And you better not either. Now, we are to be greatly concerned about the prosperity of the gospel. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in this earth. And I'm willing, when I pray that kind of prayer, I'm saying, Lord, I'm willing to be used and to become usable in bringing about God's will in this earth. You speak, Lord, I'll go. You speak. Now, my job, my, my ministry may be little. I may have a little part in God's great vineyard. And I, I recognize that my ministry is little, but I do have a part. And so does every one of you in this building. You have a part. And you have no right to place anything in the world over and above your part in God's vineyard. Not a thing. Not even your children. Not even your children are to be placed over and above. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the heartaches of my life, and I've had a few, only a few, none hard, hardly worthy of the mention, mention. But one of the heartaches of my life is the fact that I've had to uh, not enjoy my children. When my children were small, we had three. And my wife read them up, nurtured them, and did a wonderful job. And I traveled the highways and preached long before Tabernacle was ever born. And my little fellows, uh, when I started preaching years ago, before I was ever called to a church, I, my brother that's in this building now helped me borrow $135. And with that $135, I bought a little old 20 by 40 uh, gospel tent. And I made the seats that were used in that little old tent out of lumber that I salvaged out of boxcars that brought merchandise into Greenville to the place where I worked, Thomas and Howland. And we'd unload those boxcars and sometimes they'd have lumber to brace the merchandise to keep them from being damaged in transit. And I'd take that lumber out and pull the nails out of it and salvage it. And I got enough over six or eight months of that kind of salvage process to build about 15 or 20 homemade pews. Brother, they they were pews with a little P. Anything I build is not much to it. You put her down in the way of a saw and a hammer. What are you laughing at, Brother Melvin? But at least we use them. And, uh, and I remember Jimmy, uh, he'd go down to the warehouse with me on Saturday, and I'd, I'd help my wife take care of him, and I'd carry him down to the warehouse, and I'd work on those pews on Saturday when I got off. I worked during the week, but I built those pews on Saturday afternoon. And he's going with me. He may not even remember it, just a little old boy, two or three years old. And I, I didn't have the joy of playing with my children or, or picnicking with my children, you see, because I was busy with the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that for you to feel sorry for me. 
If I had my life to live all over again, I wouldn't change it one bit. My children have turned out all right. You say, well, you need to... No, they turned out all right. My wife did a masterful job. And my heavenly father helped her, and I preached the gospel, and my kid has turned out all right. Hallelujah. Now, you better turn yours over to God, too, and mind the things of God, you see. And become occupied with the big thing in your life. The big thing in your life is serving God. Now, I don't mean by that that you don't neglect your wife and abuse your children. Not at all. I don't mean that. But I mean that first, the great concern of my life is, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. Then number three, in the next verse, here is an humble request that I want you to look at. Jesus said in this prayer, this model prayer, when you get through your proper approach, when you express your godly concern, then uh, here is your humble request. Give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> There's not much of that, is it? And that's the way it's to be. I'm not to get on my knees and say, now, Lord God, I want you to help make a million dollars in my lifetime. You know, I never have prayed that in my life. And I have no plan to start it. Let me make a million dollars. No, no. No, if I had a million dollars, it'd just be a million dollars for the Lord. I don't have it. Never will have it, I don't suspect. But I never asked God for a million dollars. But I've asked him for bread. And that's the humble request we ought to make. I have never asked God to let me live in a mansion on the hilltop. I've lived comfortably and live now comfortably. And I wouldn't have enough audacity to get on my knees and ask God to make my life one bit easier than it is. If I got on my knees and asked God to make it any easier or more luxurious than it has been, to me that would be as wicked and as wrong as it could be. God's been good to me. And he's blessed me in so many ways until I can't catch up thanking God for what he's done. I don't live in a mansion, but I'm completely satisfied with what God's given to me. And you to be, you to be so satisfied with what God's given to you that the height of your request will be daily bread. Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Oh, but preacher, I plan to get ahead in this life. No, you get daily bread and you're ahead. Just ask the Lord to give you daily bread. You're all right. Yeah, the time might come when God had to perform a miracle to do that. You know, you could have a stroke of paralysis and couldn't work. You could have a long, serious illness and lose everything you've got. If you had one major surgery of major proportions that break the average one of us financially. So you better start praying where Jesus taught us to pray. Give me this day my daily bread. There's not much to that. That's very humble. Somebody said, well, attempt big things. I read these days until... Uh, about the fact that some preachers have discovered how to become rich. I got a letter the other day advertising a book on how to succeed and how to get miracles. One uh, so-called great uh, preacher body said, expect a miracle daily. Well, wait a minute. I don't know. The Bible says that we're to be meek. And Jesus says, Ask not for a miracle, but for daily bread. 
Somebody's fouled up down the road. You say, well, you ought to get rich. A saved person ought to be rich. Well, where do you find that in the Bible? You don't find it in the Bible. No, your humble request, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Now, I want to say to you, if you'll pray that humble prayer, God will give you daily bread if you do have a stroke of paralysis. God will give you daily bread if you lose every dime you've got in a major illness. God will take care of you until you die if you'll ask him for daily bread. An humble request. Ask God for the humble things. Don't bother about the big things. Ask God for the humble things. Oh, but I want to be big. That's the curse of this day. Everything wants to be big. It's got to be out of proportions. Great. Big. Got to be big. You don't find that in the Bible. Then I want you to know another thing. In verse number 12, Jesus said, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I see something in that. Here is a required, a required condition of our prayer. You'll not get your prayers heard before God until you pray, verse number 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And if I won't forgive my brother that may trespass against me, neither will God forgive you your trespasses. Here is a required condition of answered prayer. If somebody has trespassed you, violated you, slandered you, persecuted you, set all manner of evil against you, falsely, and you won't forgive that person, you hold alt in your heart, you say, I'll not forgive, I'll just not forgive, you disqualify your prayer life. And brethren, it's not worth it. It'd be far better for you to forgive and bear the hatchet and forget it and have your prayers heard and answered than it would be to seek revenge and have God tie up your prayer life and disqualify you when you get on your knees. Here is a required condition. Forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those that trespass against me. You can't pray otherwise. Then I want you to note in verse 13, Here's something that's really uh, tremendous, I think. Jesus, in this model prayer, said, Pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, may I remind you that God doesn't tempt any man to evil through the flesh. In James 1, verses 13 and 14, the Bible declares that when you're tempted, you're drawn away of your own lust. Don't blame God for it. Your own lust, your own will, and temptations come through your flesh. God does not lead men into fleshly temptations. What Jesus is saying here is, Lord, if it be thy will, let this day pass without a major testing of my faith. The testing of the faith is not an easy thing. Think it not strange concerning this fiery trial, fiery testing which is to try thee as though some strange thing had happened unto thee. Those days are hard when God subjects your faith to a fiery trial. Is hard. Now you have a right to say, now Lord, don't lead me in that today, but deliver me from that evil and let me have a good day without the testing of my faith. You have a right to pray that. But sometimes God allows your faith to be tested. You remember one time Jesus said, Peter, Satan hath desired thee. What for? To sift thee. Well, that's going to be bad. No, Jesus said, I didn't let him do it. He desired it but I wouldn't let him do it. A Job came to God and the devil said, now, God, that man's a hypocrite. God said, he's not. The devil said, he is. God said, I'll prove it. The devil said, all right, I'll show you. He'll curse you and die. 
And you know what happened? Devil, God said, devil, you'd do anything you may except take his life. His life is in my hand. And the devil afflicted Job. Sores broke out. Ten children uh, killed instantly. His wife turned against him. All of his wealth swept away. His cattle gone. He became a pauper overnight. And in all of that, Job maintained his integrity and never accused God foolishly. Now that's a fire trial. That wasn't pleasant. But that was God's man being subjected to a fire trial. And Jesus said, when you pray, you may say, Lord, lead me not into that kind of a temptation, but deliver me from that evil, if it's your will, do that. And then finally, in verse uh, number 13, the latter part, for thine is the kingdom, the glory, and the power forever, amen. Now that last clause, I see in that a godly praise, a godly praise. Now may I say this to you, every prayer that you pray whether it's public or private, ought somewhere in the body of that prayer have a godly praise for the Almighty. One way or another, through some expression or some terminology or some word of praise or worship, every prayer ought to have incorporated in this body a word of praise to Almighty God. Can you imagine the vibration that would be set up in America if the next time there's a great dignitary in Washington that prays and every once in a while they have an inauguration or they have a funeral in Washington and it's telecast around the world and somebody will pray a prayer that says dead is four o'clock in the morning. Uh, can you imagine what would happen in America if, if that person suddenly in his prayer set out to praise almighty God? I mean, right at the close of it, he'd say now, uh, say, we honor thee as the great God of this universe, as the miraculous father of a virgin-born Savior, who lived in the world sinless and spotless, and who died victoriously and vicariously on the cross, and who got up out of the grave, hallelujah, and shook the dust off his robe, and then went back to heaven 40 days later in some golden daybreak, hallelujah, coming back. Can you imagine the vibration to be set up in America if somebody would pray that way? Well, you may never stand before a TV camera with all the world looking upon you to pray. Chances are you won't. But when you go to that closet and close the door, you can pray that way. Amen. I make it a point when I go to the prayer room and get through. Sometimes I'm there by myself, praying by myself. When I get up, I walk around, as I said to you last Sunday morning, and sometimes I clap my hands and sing and praise God. And I talk about how great God is. I tell God how wonderful he is, how gracious he's been to me, and how powerful he is, and how great he is. And I think God's pleased with that, and that's exactly what the Lord is saying when he closed this model prayer. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the glory. Thine is the power forever. Every prayer ought to have a godly element of praise about it. Praise God when you pray. Now here's a model prayer. I think Jesus gave it uh, for that. I don't think God intend, intended when he gave us this prayer in the Sermon on the Mount for me and you to get up and quote it and let it be our prayer. You say, well, I think I'll do that. Well, I, I, I couldn't gainsay it. You do it if you will, but I don't think it was given for that purpose. No, when I was at Furman, they'd bring all the dignitaries in to speak at chapel, and almost invariably, 
they'd close their message with uh, the Lord's Prayer as if they were doing God some great service. I don't think that's why this prayer is given. I think this prayer is given to teach me and you how our prayers are to be, how our prayers are to be constructed, what our prayers are to be like. And I challenge my congregation today to pray in this way. And God will honor you and bless you if you'll fashion your prayers, public or private, after the illustration and the example and the model given by our Lord in these verses. We will bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we come to thank you for this model prayer that thou hast given. And we believe it to be such. Help us in our prayer life. Lord, we confess that we need thee. And I pray that the blessed Spirit of God will move upon us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And that our prayer life may be scriptural and healthy. And that, that answers may be on the way. And victories can be enjoyed as a result of our praying. Lord, help us to be warned not to pray as the hypocrites do. And then help us positively to learn the positive lesson given by our Lord in this model prayer. In Jesus' name, I make my petition today. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.